Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a weekly podcast to keep you up to date on what's new on our cloud platform, Microsoft Azure. Your hosts, Cynthia Crane, Evan Basilic, Suji DeMello, Kenno Roden, Kel Teeter, and Russell Young discuss a different service or solution on each show with subject matter experts to explain how to get started, how different services work, and how to make decisions in tricky scenarios. You can find out more about our podcast at azpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Azure Podcast. This is episode number 471 being recorded on the 30th of August, 2023 with special guest Steve Salini. I'm Sajid, and on teams with me, we have Russell, Kale, and of course, our special guest, Steve, who we're going to get to in just a minute on a very hot topic these days. Uh, but before uh, we get there, let's just talk about some of the news in the Azure space. And uh, I see a few items that we've put together. Uh, Kale, do you, want, uh, do you have one to start it, get us started? Yeah, sure. The first one I have here uh, is about um, distributed denial of service attacks, so DDoS, uh, you may have heard about in the media before. Um, and this is basically a lot of work that we've been doing around simulation testing for Azure um, for these uh, DDoS attacks. So essentially what this is, is we have this thing called Azure DDoS protection, which is this uh, solution offered in Azure to basically protect applications and, and things, your resources and whatnot inside of there from these type of attacks. And there's essentially these, you can build these plans in your uh, Azure subscription in order to provide these kind of features. Along with that, we have simulation partners who are working with us on this uh, to do that. Now, obviously, there's a lot of controls around this kind of stuff, right? When you set these kind of things up, they can only work inside of Azure and inside of your um, you know, tenant that you're using so that you're not uh, affecting others or actually launching you know, offensive attacks uh, against the internet or whatnot. So it's a very uh, kind of controlled environment, but it gives you a way to basically be able to simulate these kind of uh, DDoS things and, and provide you know some protection, gap analysis, all these kind of things that you're looking for to harden your applications against you know the public uh, internet and these types of attacks that are happening. Um, there's a great article on this. I'll go ahead and we'll put it in the link uh, notes. And basically, it walks you through step by step of how to create these protection plans, how to run these simulations and, and whatnot inside uh, Azure, which is really cool. Indeed, very cool. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have a few in there, so I'll run through them. And uh, the first one is on our Windows application firewall. Uh, now uh, there is the new feature where we can do rate limiting. Right? So if you you can set it up so if there is uh, certain clients that are maybe you know sending you too many requests, you can kind of uh, give them a rate limit. Of course, what that means is it'll prevent. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of what Kale was talking about. The, you know, the denial of service attacks to help mitigate that. Essentially, it'll slow down that particular client, right? It's not going to uh, just turn it off, but just make sure that not one client is uh, uh, overwhelming the entire system. Uh, a second one is uh, Terraform has been you know, something that's become very popular these days. And uh, on the other side of it, we've uh, got a feature in uh, which we have to talk about at some point, which is, you know, Cosmos DB has all these cool front ends now that they support to, to kind of mimic different databases. And one of them is the PostgreSQL database. Uh, you know, we talked about last week about how PostgreSQL database has that flex uh, kind of 
environment where it can grow, the database size can grow uh, dynamically. So there's a lot of features that are being added to the actual PostgreSQL. But if you want, uh, uh, if you just care about Postgres as a protocol, you could use Cosmos DB as a backend and have a Postgres SQL uh, front end uh, to it. So you get all the uh, all the reliability of a Cosmos DB database in that. Uh, uh, so now there is a Terraform support for that configuration. So if you want to deploy a Cosmos DB database with a PostgreSQL front end, you can do that through uh, through Terraform and do all the manipulation that Terraform offers to you. Uh, you know the infrastructure as code. Similar to that, uh, uh, like uh, or at least part of the same service now. Uh, there's also AAD authentication available too. So if you, if you need to authenticate to a PostgreSQL front end running with the Cosmos DB backend, you can do that with AAD now. You don't have to use the connection strings uh, uh, that we typically use in the past. And then um, a, a couple more updates here on Azure Functions. Uh, you know, durable functions is something that uh, a lot of developers like. It's a nice architectural pattern, offers uh, a very uh, consistent way of uh, having your functions running reliably, reliably all the time. And uh, Python was not supported as a language in durable functions. It used to be like think .NET and a few others. I think JavaScript uh, was also there. Now Python is supported. We all know Python is becoming very popular, especially with OpenAI. And so I'm glad they've added that with uh, durable functions as well. So you can, I'm sure uh, a lot of people who are building OpenAI applications will find this useful. And finally, uh, Azure Redis. Uh, you know, one of the most frustrating things as a, as a app developer is when you have a Redis backend, if there's a, a latency or a delay in your application, you know, you don't really know if it's because of Redis, right? It did, you expect Redis to, to, to typically come back very quickly, but if you're doing some sort of query on Redis, sometimes it can take uh, some amount of time. And so now they've added a new metric uh, to Azure Redis um, where it can tell you the 99th percentile, uh, you know, what was the latency? So you can go and say, okay, you know, uh, what is the worst case latency that I experienced uh, over this period of time? And then kind of correlate that uh, to some, uh, to some queries that you may have made from your application can it get you allow you to troubleshoot that uh, a little quickly. Russell, what do you got? Yeah, um, so this isn't a new sexy feature, unfortunately, and I, I seem to keep picking these things out when they go end of life. Um, but yeah, as um, the uh, ASCs, App Service Environments, um, we're on version three of it now, which was announced, I think, July 21, thereabouts. Um, version three has been out quite a while. Version one and two, our end of lifing um, in the end of August next year. So plenty of time to do something about this. Um, but it's just a reminder, really, and it was posted on the Azure blog site about this. Um, by moving to version three, you do get some, some new features. You get some cost savings because there's no stamp cost in, as part of that cluster. Um, you get improved performance, better scaling, better security and resilience. We've got some free automated in, uh, migration tooling available. Uh, there's a pre-flight check, there's some live learning sessions and um, the ability to engage fast track for those larger projects as well. Um, yeah, and, and for those that aren't aware app service environments, um, it, it's this kind of isolated and dedicated environment for running apps securely at high scale. Um, confusingly only available through the app service plans version two. Um, but it will be ASE V3 when you when you provision them. So if you're on those, and I've I've been having conversations with my customers about you know planning to migrate and what have you, um, do do make sure you you get it done, or at least you've got a plan to get it done. Yeah, and it does remind me of one more retirement which uh, we should tell our customers about, uh, which is cloud services, right? So this is the very first 
past service wow. on Azure yeah. uh, back <laughs> back in the day, right? Which started it all when it was still called Red Dog, I think. Uh, uh, so those uh, that particular deployment model, cloud services, is is definitely being retired. There is an extended support model that you can migrate to temporarily, uh, which is well. So within the next year, so starting from uh, this week until uh, exactly one year from now, uh, you should be looking at uh, moving your cloud services to that uh, to that extended support model. Okay, uh, but those uh, were. Those were available before VMs, weren't they? So it was that was the like very first system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because Azure was uh, kind of took a different path for, from when it came to the cloud. They started with past services, then went to VMs. Most yeah. of the cloud service uh, providers did it the other way. Uh, so yeah, so uh, the, and, and I know a, a few customers that have been using that. I've actually done a lot of work with them over the years. We should do a reminiscence episode at some point and go back a few years and uh, does that see does the that mean that that's the end of non-arm deployments then, Sajit? Is that does that also mean that or no? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So once this is gone, I mean, when it goes to the extended support, uh, they kind of came up with a. Uh, they were working at least on on a, on a V2 of cloud services to kind of right. modernize it slightly. So maybe that's going to allow them to do uh, cloud services through ARM. I, I don't uh, remember the exact details on that. Uh, but yeah, for for the original cloud services, that was the ASM model, I think. Yeah, and, and yep, that is it. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's definitely going to be yeah. ASM was the thing that's yeah. Yeah. Cool. Great. Well, that's a good roundup on the news. Uh, so uh, I think it's uh, time to to get Steve uh, uh, here. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's, uh, mm -hmm. Please give our listeners uh, some uh, information about your your background, what you do at Microsoft, what your passion is, and we'll take it from there. Uh, sure. So I'm uh, what we call a partner development manager. Uh, so I, I work within our global partner solutions group uh, on the uh, global financial services ISV team. Uh, so I look after the go-to-market relationship between Microsoft and a, a handful uh, of our global uh, software companies that work in, in the FSI industry. Uh, I've been doing that for uh, two and a half years. I've been at Microsoft for 10. Uh, I used to be I used to be more technical. I used to be on an account team as a, a technology strategist, and I, I sold to some of our uh, enterprise accounts. So yeah, and uh, you know, uh, we, you and I have worked uh, recently on some of those uh, uh, FSI uh, ISV partners, uh, and that's how I, uh, I got to know you. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we've seen and you've seen as well is uh, you know, a lot of our FSI customers are looking at getting onto the uh, AI and OpenAI and ML bandwagon. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they've been trying it for for a long time, but now uh, we've provided all the the tools uh, and technologies to make it easier. So, uh, you know, I was uh, one of the questions that uh, we were wondering is like, you know, what are some of the use cases, right, that we're seeing uh, uh, are with our customers? So we can, you know, start with that and then maybe dive into, you know, what are some of the difficulties in adopting this uh, these technologies that they may be facing uh, that we we should be considering as we uh, come up with solutions mm -hmm. for them. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, uh, Sajid. Yeah, you know, co-pilots everywhere, right? Is the uh, that's probably the the number the number one trend. But uh, yeah, it, 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 when you think about what generative AI is good at, you know, I think that's the kind of the logical step. You know, as you start to think about what the use cases are, and you know, content creation probably being number one, you know, where the the term generative comes from. But you know, also being able to reason over large volumes of data. You know, what you might call that knowledge mining, um, summarization sort of next level chatbots. You know, I think these are the the big buckets that partners are thinking about. 
there's certainly things that generative is not good at. And if you think about numerical calculations and you know, maybe things that are very highly sensitive from a regulatory standpoint, maybe aren't great use cases to start with. Um, but there are a lot of good ideas that are that are falling out of this. And uh, I do also like that you know, the introduction and really all the attention that generative is getting is you know, awakening kind of this dormant line of thinking in our partners and probably in our customers as well in terms of what you can do just with AI broadly. Uh, they may have ideas. I've, I've seen this quote a bit actually where a partner will then come with an idea for you know generative AI in quotes and you look at the use case and you go, well, that's a, that's just machine learning, right? That's that's something that we've been able to do. You know, Maybe it's cognitive or something, right? That's something that we've been able to do for the past several years. Um, but it wasn't always top of mind because there, there wasn't the, you know, kind of the, you know, this stage of attention that AI is getting now. Um, so it is, you know, resurrecting some things that are they're very, very real and have been real, but can be done now. Um, and partners really have to, you know, when you're a software company, you know, much like, much like we are, um, the technologists in all of us gravitate quickly to what the possibilities are. Like, this is super cool. What can I do with it? What can I automate? How can I make this process faster or better? How can I improve my user experience? But you also have to val you have to balance that with what's commercially viable as as a software company of you know, anything that I build is going to incur costs. I, I have to pay my developers. I have to pay for the services. Uh, I have to know if that's going to result in revenue down the road for me. So that is you know that's a very delicate balance. I think our partners have to have to figure out. And you know uh, if you were to uh, Think about what are some of the like you know the low-hanging fruit or the big rocks you know that these partners are trying to solve for. Uh, I mean, obviously, all the partners have uh, you know insurance, capital markets, banking, customers, right? Uh, so looking at a broad swath of uh, you know FSI uh, uh, use cases, like are there mm -hmm. any like uh, you know big rocks that all of them are thinking about, right? Like this is like the uh, the most popular thing that all of them are asking for. <clears throat> yeah. Uh yeah, I think there's there's a very easy one around the 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 code side of this, which you know anybody who looks at GitHub Copilot, you know, it's very easy to see how that number one that makes your own developers more productive, but also very easy to then draw, uh, you know, extrapolate into um, whatever kind of modeling tools our partners might have, where they have proprietary languages that that they've developed. This is very common in uh, financial modeling, risk modeling, et cetera. Of okay, now I can actually you know, point these models to my own code base and now help my customers develop code using our proprietary language uh, and make them that much more productive and maybe even open up the tooling to, to people who are, you know, a little bit less skilled from from a development standpoint. Um, so that's a, that's a you know, from a low-hanging fruit standpoint, that's that's very easy. That's, know, to, that's very to interesting. That. I, ne I never thought mm -hmm. about that. So this is using the codex, I guess the codex model or whatever we call it, right? Uh, 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 you're saying that instead of just looking at the, all the open source uh, repositories out there, uh, you can say, okay, uh, here's my internal uh, GitHub or whatever source control system, and uh, index that or, or, or you know or, or use that as a reference. Is that is that how it works? Yeah, you know, these won't be publicly. You know, there's no open source for you know some of these proprietary languages, and you know they're you have to you have to take a, a look at does is this something that you can do with just you know very creative prompt engineering and 
uh, few shot learning, things like that? Or do you have to look at fine tuning? You know, that's you know, how do you actually train the model to understand this language and, and give reasonable suggestions to the developers who are using it? But yeah, it's it's uh, it's something that we're seeing you know, across a, a number of, uh, of accounts. Yeah, one thing I was wondering if you were seeing any trends around, like uh, from the data side, because you know, if you take finance for instance, a lot of internal databases. There's obviously not just like one big one, right? They have tons of these mm-hmm. databases, and rationalizing data uh, mm-hmm. across those is quite hard, right? And things like nat- natural language can maybe help in that case, uh, mm-hmm. especially as people are joining the enterprise and being like, how could I do something? For instance, I'm thinking about like, you know, quants and these kind of guys, they know like all the internal structures and things like that around things because they're very detailed with the data. But mm-hmm. what if there was another analyst who just said, I know high level what I want to ask, but I really don't know the exact tables. Is that something that uh, they're kind of looking into? It's it's a use case I've heard. I haven't I haven't heard it with the partners that I that I manage, but I have heard that from some of my peers of you know, this using a, a a natural language interface to then go generate a SQL query, you know, or something like that, where that can actually go retrieve the the data that the the analyst or the uh, you know whoever the front end user is what they're looking for without having to know how to pull that directly themselves. Uh, I, I think other other ones that we're seeing that I think are pretty common are the you know, we, uh, you know, sort of maybe jokingly said copilots everywhere, but that is a that is a very valid use case. You know that we're seeing both there. You know there's an internal aspect of that um, whether they whether a customer or a partner can fulfill you know can arm their agents and consultants and you know knowledge workers basically with something that they have to build themselves uh, and. Yeah, you're, you've seen some uh, some announcements publicly. I think Moody's did an announcement uh, with us about you know building a, a Moody's GPT or something like that. Um, you know that's available for them internally. You know, is that something they have to build, or can they you know maybe leverage some of our own first party copilot to to deliver some of that capability? Uh, you're hearing that a lot in terms of how do we how do we make our own agents and consultants more productive. Uh, but then also from a product standpoint. You know, how do you make your products easier to use? How do you surface functionality that maybe is not used uh, by, on a regular basis by your end users? And does this make, you know, I'm, I'm trying to align it with, you know, many of our ISVs are still in the process of transitioning from uh, what I would call more boxed product into SaaS. Uh, and even if they've already been in SaaS, they're maybe still adopting or rolling out continuous delivery. And so their users are not accustomed to the constant changes in the UI that our users are used to because we've been doing this for such a long time. Um, so having a copilot there that can actually help with that instructional UI and and you know give the user some real meaningful instruction suggestions about how to use the the, the tool um, more intelligently, I think is really interesting for a lot of our partners. Um, that's an interesting thing about you know the challenges of uh, adopting OpenAI in an ISV product, right? Because uh, now you have to uh, this is new service that they have to uh, kind of add on. And I know we've had challenges even with customers trying to get access to OpenAI, right? There's you get a, you have to get on the waiting list sometimes mm-hmm. and things like that. So so mm-hmm. I'm just wondering like you know that must be even more confusing or problematic for ISVs, right? Trying to include like open ai as part of the solution how does that work do they um uh, i guess if it's a SaaS solution uh, is it just one of the services that the customer has to get pre-authorized for because that could cause problems when they try to deploy these solutions in customer tenants 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if we've gotten, at least with my partners, we might not have gotten far enough to know exactly what they'll do from both from a commercialization standpoint, as well as um, how will they manage the demands of the infrastructure, not knowing exactly how it will be used, uh, at least coming out of the gate. And then, you know, how many customers will buy it? Um, you know, if it's an additional SKU, let's say, for an existing product, that you have to upsell your customer to, you know, how do you forecast that demand? And then in, in turn, forecast that demand back to Microsoft. Like, I think that's going to be challenging um, for our partners to do. But, um, you know, with the provision throughput units that we have available, I think we, you know, we're giving our partners confidence that they can have access to the resources they need to deliver to the customers. Um, but it's really on them to decide how do we, how are we going to sell this? If we're selling, is it a, is it a module? Is it an add-on SKU? Is it a new product? Like how how actually do we package this and then take that to market? You mentioned uh, Moody's as one of them, and that's something that you know I have heard of as well. Uh, they're a, a big use case in OpenAI. Uh, what are some of the other uh, like you know well-known use cases that uh, exist in FSI that you know maybe uh, the ISVs are going to start thinking about that? Oh, you know maybe that's something you know we should put in the product. Right? Uh, I can see so mm-hmm. many customers are asking for it. Uh, uh, other other uh, use cases that you may be familiar with? <clears throat> yeah, there's uh, so there's one that's more internal that we didn't talk about, which was there's you know, there's a lot of contact center. Uh, use cases that are, and this isn't an FSI specific thing. I think you'd find this in just about any industry, but you know, we've been able to do speech to text, uh, maybe entity extraction from call logs for a long time, but you know, actually analyzing the logs for you know, what are the three most important things. This could be a 10, 15 minute discussion. How do you summarize it? What are the three or five most important things that were discussed? What was the sentiment of the customer? What was the resolution? Right? How do you actually pull that kind of content out of out of freeform text? You know, something that we can do. And imagine doing that in, in you know as close to real time potentially as you could get to to be able to you know, really improve your context center experience. Um, I think that applies to any industry. Um, financial services is looking at things like fraud detection. You know, we've we've been able to do fraud with traditional machine learning techniques, but a lot of that looks at the, what you call it the metadata or the structured data uh, around things like claims and insurance. But now you can actually look at the contents of those claims and, and you know, draw patterns across potentially things that you did not be, you were not able to see at scale before. Um, and then content generation, I think is, is really interesting. Um, you know, capital markets, things like pitch book generation, uh, you know, writing, you know, whether it's a, you know, it's not like you would take a, you would not automate the writing of a policy for insurance, but you could automate the a starter version of that. You know, from in a copilot perspective, to you know, allow you to take you know ninety percent, uh, you know, get a ninety percent complete document and then fill through the fill the rest of it with an actual with a human. Um, you know, how do you actually take these things that are you know fairly kind of rote repetitive work and and use AI to deliver those? Yeah, that is one thing that did come to mind. I was going to ask you. Uh, you know, in AI, we all know this. Uh, we're not supposed to take whatever is given to us and apply it blindly, right? We're suppo- mm-hmm. everything's supposed to have like a human review uh, attached to it. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know how? Uh, like, I'm just wondering, like, you know, when ISVs are are kind of incorporating this, 
uh, does that mean like there's additional work they have to do to create uh, like review panels or, you know, or, or screens or whatever in everything? Because it, you can't really just take something and uh, maybe, uh, you know, up, uh, apply it to a customer blindly. Right. There has to be uh, a review step. So uh, how are they adapting to that model, which is going to be different from what they're probably used to in the past? <clears throat> Yeah, and it's a very conservative industry, you know, as as I think you know from you know, from working with uh, with some of our customers and partners. The uh, there is an extensive review that I think is going on in pretty much all these organizations from a legal standpoint as to you know what where does where does the liability sit in in some of these scenarios and you know how is that how is that risk mitigated? Um, you know, I I suspect that in a lot of scenarios software companies will do what they can to pass that on to their customers uh, in that, you know, there'll be disclaimers or language that says, you know, that the content generated is not to be considered uh, 100% accurate or complete. You see this kind of, you see this guidance if you do search in Bing, right? So, you know, there's a disclaimer, you know, it, this is not 100% accurate, right? You need to, you need to validate that these things are, are the way that you need them to be. So, you know, they'll put in the appropriate um, guide rails to make sure that they're not exposing you know, a, a level of risk that is not tolerable um, for their business and that you know, the customers are advised appropriately of if you're going to use this capability, you need to put the right checks and balances in place to make sure that what goes to then your customer uh, is something that you're, you're, you can have the, the faith that it's fully, uh, fully accurate and keeps your business safe. Yeah, I was interested too. Also, if you saw any signals around like uh, messaging, I know like at um, Build Conference, we showed some like copilots. You were talking about copilots earlier. We showed mm-hmm. some of those in in Teams, for instance, where mm-hmm. uh, Teams can be powered by these copilots, and you can basically ask Teams questions, and you kind of like that agent model where it's answering questions mm-hmm. for you, but it's like consulting other things, maybe other copilots, maybe backend databases, whatever. So I was just mm-hmm. interested if you're seeing any signal on that side too for these kind of internal applications these companies for uh like messaging i guess it would be your comms you know type things yeah yeah i mean i i suspect i don't know the moody's uh story or i think i think axa just just also issued a press release about something similar you know i don't know those stories in detail but i assume that's how they're working uh is that you know they're building you know they're building these chat interfaces that you know not just draw from publicly available information like uh like bingwood uh, but also internal data sources and knowledge bases and things like that to to aggregate knowledge across the company, um, really improving kind of uh, you know a historical problem that this industry's had for 30 years, which is in enterprise search. Right? How do you how do you find all this data and information that is locked up within the organization and using these natural language queries to access that, whether that's structured or unstructured, is is really powerful. Um, you know, my partners that I manage directly, I don't think have gotten as far as those two organizations, but uh, I could see that being applicable, you know, really to, to all of them. I thought SharePoint was supposed to solve all this. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> SharePoint Copilot. There we go. <laughs> Copilot, and, SharePoint, uh, yeah. There's, there's so, so much to, to think about here and they, all this guidance and everything that you're talking about, Steve. And I think it, it looks to me like what's needed is a framework for like, like a center of excellence or, um, you know, like we've got the guidance for well-architected framework, for example. You want mm-hmm. some principles and some like a checklist for, mm-hmm. for people to follow to be able to implement mm-hmm. things so to make sure, you know, that they're doing things in a, 
well, using AI responsibly, you know, going across our fairness pillar and reliability and mm-hmm. safety and all the rest of it. So are, are you seeing partners kind of actively or proactively adopting that? Or is it something that they're kind of discovering through their journey and then you, you're having to kind of point out to them, actually, you might need a centre of excellence around how you adopt AI and this is the approach we recommend? Yeah, it's, it's it appears to me to be very cultural across the partners. Is it you know, one of the ones I work with closely as they certainly have a penchant for forming uh, committees or COEs or whatever, whatever you might want to call them. And they've, they've already done that around generative AI. And what I, what I think you have to caution those groups in is to, is to be an enabler and not an inhibitor of, okay, let's not slow everything down. Let's give people these frameworks and these, these, these uh, best practices to then go accelerate what it is they're trying to do and to not, to not hold them back. Um, yeah, I think there are also services partners out there um, that are probably putting together their own kind of COE in a box type of offerings that they can take to 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 customers uh, to help them kind of instrument that and guide them along their journey. But you know, it seems like it's 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 happening differently to everybody, you know, based on you know corporate culture and how they think about where they ride the wave of innovation. Are they are they earlier? Do they, do they like to see things play out and then try and do more of a fast follow? Uh, yeah, I think that varies widely. And, and I guess the other thing is when they implement and, and leverage this level of generative AI on the back, or any AI, in fact, are they being transparent and coming forward and saying mm-hmm. to the customers, actually, we're using AI here. I know that you've got the disclaimers around hallucinations mm-hmm. and errors may be inherent in this, but um, are they being forthright and saying we are using open AI, this is how we use it, or is that kind of considered a bit proprietary information that they don't want to give away? Uh, I, I think they would probably lean toward toward disclosure. I, I, you know, I, I don't I don't know that with 100% confidence, but you know, at least in in this industry, you know, I I used to approach things you know, maybe naively of saying, well, if something's SaaS, why do you care about how it's built? Um, but it certainly seems like in this industry, people care very much about about how mm. it's built, even if it's being offered as a service. So a, a lot of these ISVs, I believe, are are a custom to sharing with their customers this is how we're doing it this is this is what we've built and how it works um, and ai would be the same as is what they've been doing and i think that's becoming more of the norm generally because customers are more choosy about you know what's the sustainability credentials of this software mm-hmm. or the company that i'm investing in to do x y and z as well so mm-hmm. yeah that, that's good to hear it's, it's a good step forward i think mm-hmm. How serious are the partners taking this new technology? Because, you know, there's this whole, like, you know, is it a hype cycle or whatever, right? I mean, everyone's into uh, AI now. Uh, are customers, like, you know, going after this uh, tooth and nail? Or are they, like, you know, mm-hmm. treading cautiously, waiting to see what the, uh, what the kind of market is? I'm talking about, you know, the ISV especially. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Yeah, yeah, based on what I see, I think at an executive level, I think every executive would tell you they're taking it seriously. Um, they certainly would tell their customers that, um, that they, they want to look like they are forward thinking and they're at you know, the vanguard of technology. Um, the reality probably is that you know, it's a very mixed bag. And you know, some, are, some are moving quickly, some are being exceptionally cautious uh, around 
how they're approaching this. And, you know, they're, you, you want to get the use cases right. You know, and I certainly don't discredit the idea of, like, let's not just go rush to build something because we can. You know, we need to right. think about whether it's the right use case, what's the risk profile, how do we monetize this, all of that stuff. Um, but I, I think they have to take it seriously, whether it's because they look at it from an innovation standpoint or they look at it from a defensive position of if we're if we don't have this and our competitors do we're going to lose business right but yeah but you're right it has to have something it has to be something that makes sense for the product that they're offering right i mean if mm -hmm. if, if opening it doesn't fit in that model then there's no point trying to just shove it in there so yeah uh, i think uh, it's a good mm -hmm. idea to start with a good solid use case uh this is amazing. Yeah, thanks uh, so much, Steve, for for sharing all your insights into this. It's been uh, really enlightening. Any more questions for Steve, guys? All right. I'm well, good here. I see, thanks, Steve. If you if here. you have any uh, resources you want to share, like if you think you have like a, a you know uh, a list of uh, these use cases that are public or anything that you feel you want to share with our listeners, you can send them over to me, and I can attach them along with the podcast uh, recording for the show. Sure. All right. Sounds good. Good. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thanks, guys. Right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to connect, find us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. We hope you'll tune in again soon to keep learning with us.